Hi, this is Gordon Hunsucker, and you are listening to Awaken Nation with Brad Zollis. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zollis, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Gordon, welcome to the show, brother. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Hanging in, man. Uh, I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while, and I think our guests are going to love what you're talking about. For those of you who don't know who Gordon Hunsaker is, Gordon is literally Mr. Adventure. He's a mountain climber, an explorer, a treasure hunter, a scuba diver. Uh, he's into off-road vehicles, motorcycling, uh, cave exploring, treasure finder, you name it. Uh, Gordon has done it, but one of the things that has really excited me the most is he is an award-winning adventure photographer. In other words, he takes photos up on the top of mountains when the sun is coming up. Uh, and uh, I wanted to welcome you to the show, Gordon. Welcome to Awaken. I appreciate it. Sure, man. So um, you have one of these interesting stories that I find um, really unique. And we, we get guests on the show that uh, have been through a lot. But you are truly an adventurer. And I want to start our discussion with, how did this start, man? I mean, what happened in it as a kid? Did you fall on your head or did, was your dad into this? What was it? Well, my dad actually was into it. Um, and I, yeah, I did fall on my head more than once. <laughs> uh, I think it kind of started for me when I was about two days before my second or first birthday. I remember being in, and oddly enough, I remember this, I was in a Quonset hut on a military base. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a building that's kind of shaped like a half dome. They've got funny little windows in them, and that's where they do various things. So, but this particular one was turned into a daycare. Apparently, the first time I was in a daycare. And I remember um, the nurses in the place coming up to us little kids, and they were telling us they wanted us to take a nap. I'm not much of a sleeper, so as a young kid, I didn't want to take a nap because I wasn't tired. So they put me down on one of those army cots, and I remember laying there and watching the nurses. And as they all kind of congregated together in the middle, there was about three of them. I turned on and climbed out the window above my head and climbed down these blue and red and orange barrels that were right there and went out into the field. <laughs> and uh, I remember seeing my dad's car coming down the road. And a few minutes later, I could hear him yelling at the nurses, what do you mean you don't know where he is? <laughs> I think that kind of started it off. So uh, I'm just curious, how old were you at that time? Two days before my first birthday. You climbed out of your cot at a military base. Yeah, nice. and out the window, disappeared, and they didn't even know I was gone. That's a little scary. I don't know if I could handle a kid like you. Yeah, well, talk to my parents. They couldn't either. That's funny. So tell us a little bit about how you, you kind of got into this as an adult, because I've seen some of your photos of you doing motocross biking 
and you've been doing this like 40, 50 years at least, treasure hunting, mountain climbing. You've been all over the world, brother. Yeah, I have. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a very unique environment. Uh, I kind of grew up around Lake Tahoe, Carson City area, but my playground was ghost towns and mining camps and mine shafts and caves and deserts. That's where I got to play. And we started, my friends and I, there was a group of us that did this. I started exploring mines when I was like nine years old. Right. And that just led into other things. And we would get lost in these things sometimes, which was always fun. And every once in a while, you'd see something in a mine. I remember one day walking by a, a big mine support, and there was this old blue denim shirt just sitting there. Everybody else just passed it by. And I decided to check the pockets. And uh, inside the pocket, I found this really nice gold nugget. Wow. That kind of got me hooked. That got you hooked, man. Well, it was one of the things. One of the stories that you told me, and I was kind of like, this is a really um, serious story because I was a Boy Scout and I've camped on mountains, you know, with nothing but, you know, a tent and a sleeping bag, and that's about it. And uh, it's cold, and we had to use snow as our uh, insulator. People don't know that snow can be an insulator, but tell the story of when you were on the mountain and somebody didn't tie the tents down properly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, um, we were doing a winter ascent of a 14,000-foot peak in Colorado. It was what? a mountain called Democrat. Democrat um, Mountain. Yeah, Democrat Mountain. Um, we had climbed up to just uh, below the base of the peak, and I set up a camp. And I dug it three feet down below the, the snow line and staked it down with snow pickets and, you know, really secured it. And we went about our business, had dinner, you know, kind of relaxed, and we were going to hit the summit the next morning. During the night, this storm from hell came in. It started around 10 o'clock at night, and the winds just kept picking up and picking up. And by two o'clock in the morning, uh, the wind had gotten so severe that it was literally lifting the tent off the ground with the three of us in it and all our gear. And that was very concerning. Wow. If it had come loose and it could have picked us up and then where it was located, it could have gone straight off the side of the mountain. So um, I decided that this was not a good place to be. So we got everybody kind of geared up and I had come out of the tent first, and when I did, it was literally whiteout conditions. You couldn't see anywhere, anything, any at all. It snowed an extra two feet, and within five minutes of being outside the tent, the headlamps froze, the batteries on every device that was there froze. You couldn't see anything. So the last person got out of the tent, and when they did, they didn't zip the tent up, and it literally picked the tent up and sent it off into the cosmos. So let me ask you this. After you found out that the tent had lifted up and gone, you kind of, you had to get the hell out of there because you, there was no place to sleep at this point. There was no place to sleep. Well, the tent had been pretty much destroying itself from that point. Uh, it had gotten so cold that there was ice shearing through the side of the tent and the aluminum poles were literally shattering. That's how cold it was. Yeah, you said it was something like 20 below all of a sudden? Uh, no, it was actually 102 below. Holy crap. And you guys and, were bundled up and everything. But, you know, when you're in a hundred, 
I don't know if anybody has camped in this kind of weather, but when you're in 102 degree below zero, or you, I've experienced 60 below zero. And when you are, even if you have a fire going, you do not get warm, okay? Your toes are cold. You better have the best gear. You better be bundled up. And you have to wear special gloves, goggles, and everything. And you're on the side of a mountain. So uh, what happened? You, you got the hell out of there at that point. Well, the unfortunate thing was the ice axes, the snowshoes, sleeping bags, a number of other things were inside the tent. And who knows where that ended up. So they were gone. Yeah. So there was no turning back at that point. So I uh, roped everybody off and just kind of headed in the direction that I assumed was the way down. <laughs> down the mountain, in the middle of a blizzard. Yeah, like no other blizzard you could imagine. No lights, no visibility. The snow was blowing in every direction. If somebody was four feet away from me, I couldn't have seen them. Wow. So just started heading down and uh, hoping that it was the right direction. And uh, four hours later, uh, I managed to get us right to where the car was. Now, is this in pitch black? Is this in the dark at night? It was pitch black uh, from 2 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And so who was, waiting at, who was waiting at your car? My wolf. <laughs> you had a wolf dog, and he's under the car. Yeah, he uh, kind of disappeared sometime during the night. I was a little concerned for him. And by the time we got there, he was under the car waiting. And he kind of gave me this look like, well, what the hell took you so long? Um, sounds like he was the smartest one of the expedition. No, he was the smartest one of the bunch, without question. That's funny. Well, you know, I, I've had some experiences, but I've not had your experiences. I mean, this is um, balls to the wall. Uh, on the side of a mountain kind of stuff. You're living the adventurous lifestyle. Uh, tell us, what was, what was probably the most, um, most amazing thing you've ever done that you're, you're probably the most proudest of? Well, that's a really good question. Um, every time uh, I go out on a different adventure, it's a unique experience. And there's something unique that happens about that or the food or the culture or the find or somebody's very odd behavior. You never know how that's going to be. Right. I was actually in a hotel room one time having a meeting with a guy at 10 o'clock at night in the Philippines who turned out to be the most wanted man in the Philippines. And this guy's sitting across from my little tiny table in this hotel room wearing dark glasses. This guy's about five foot two and the most arrogant son of a bitch I've ever met in my life. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was an interesting night. That's a little dangerous, my brother. <laughs> but you're like the real Indiana Jones because uh, some of the stories you've told me uh, have been really interesting. You want to you talk a little bit about the Atlantis too? Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Jones, who has actually become a very good friend, he owned Atlantis, too. He bought it um, shortly after Woods Old Oceanographic Institute retired it. And it set a dock for a long time. He never had any interest at party. And he had to put it up for auction for $2.5 million, and it didn't sell. And a friend of mine had called me up and said it was available. So I called Jeff, um, had about a half-hour conversation with him, and we struck a deal. 
and I bought the vessel from him from four, for $400,000 and saved it from being salvaged. Wow. They were going to strip it, you know, turn it into parts and steel. And, and the guy was literally standing at the dock when Jeff and I were standing on the bridge uh, signing the deal. I want to ask you a question now. A lot of people may know may not know what the Atlantis II is. Do you want to tell us what sure. the ship that is? It was the first vessel to ever have the RV designation, which means research vessel. This ship um, has logged more miles of sea than any other ship uh, of its type, over a million miles on the ocean. Wow. And it was the vessel that took the Alvin submarine down after the Titanic was discovered to visually confirm that the ship was actually there. No kidding. And oh, it was off the back of it. That's awesome. Wow. So they had tell, a incredible history. Sorry, didn't that, mean to interrupt. No, no, that, that ship has an amazing history because uh, the Titanic is probably one of the f most famous shipwrecks in the world next to the Lusitania and a few other U-boats during World War II because we were just beginning to modernize uh, ship travel. So here we are almost 100 years later um, discovering, finally figuring out that here's where the Titanic is at the bottom of the Atlantic in this particular zone. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, but James Cameron's brother, this is what he does. He develops equipment that allows you to go down uh, with robotic cameras and things like this to look at these old shipwrecks. So this is, this is a historic ship, the Atlantis II. Oh, without so, question, very much so. Yeah, so let's talk about, you had the Atlantis II uh, taken from you as well, because a lot of people don't realize this, but we think of pirates as Johnny Depp from, you know, 200 years ago, the, you know, fighting the good fight in the Caribbean. But the reality is, is we have some serious pirating going on today. Uh, so let's talk about that. You, the Atlantis II was taken from you. It was. Uh, when I first found the Atlantis II, it was pretty much a train wreck. And uh, we spent two and a half months in New Orleans getting it ready. And the folks that had previously owned it told us it was going to take us easily 12 months before we could make the vessel move under its own power. Um, we accomplished that in two and a half months. And I did that with mostly laborers that I found in a Home Depot parking lot. <laughs> and yeah, Hondurans, uh, Mexicans, but these guys were amazing. They uh, worked their asses off for us. Uh, they had professional painting and plumbing and electricity and there were others that were great laborers but these guys really were the heart of what made this work so uh, we took it to um, Grand Bahama Island and the shipyard that is there uh, about three days before Thanksgiving and we went through this process of uh, getting it completely repainted all the everything current on it all the inspections that were necessary, replacing bearings, upgrading uh, the navigation system, the alarm system, virtually making it almost better than it was originally. Wow. And um, I decided it would be an appropriate tribute to take the ship back to uh, Woodhull when we got done. And uh, we arrived to a fanfare of 
uh, a lot of the scientists, um, filmmakers, crew from various organizations that had sailed on that ship in different things over its course of a right. long-term period. Now, where, where was this exactly? Whittled Oceanographic Institute in uh, Massachusetts. Okay. It's yeah. called Hui. Hui. So you, you, you brought the ship back to, to its home a, a little bit. Is that what you're saying? I did. I did bring it back to its home. Um, we had it there for four days and uh, had probably four or 500 people tour it. Heard all kinds of stories about the ship and what it had done. And there's an area down below uh, where the Bobus Bowl is, where there was portholes that you could actually see out underwater. But apparently that kind of became their sex cave. That's where everybody would kind of go and hang out when they didn't want anybody to bother them. <laughs> so we all heard stories about that. And uh, I had the former director of Woodsold come to me, and he said, you know, you're making me look bad. And I said, how is that? And he said, you know, I'm the one who originally tired this, retired this ship. And uh, he said, uh, I was wrong. He said, this vessel has a lot more miles on it. So we had done all that. And um, in the process of that, somebody had approached me and offered me $8 million for the ship. Wow. I wasn't interested in selling it, but I mistakenly made uh, this part of a conversation that I had with my partner at the time who had a 35% interest in the company. He was the one who kind of financed everything. Right. And uh, we had uh, anchored it somewhere off of um, between Connecticut and Rhode Island while we were doing some initial repairs to finish up what we were trying to do for the American Bureau of Shipping Reclassification. Right. I had gotten off the ship and uh, had gone to shore to get supplies for the day. And um, the ship was basically pirated. Wow. Uh, six armed guys boarded the ship without permission, waved guns, threatened people, um, told them not to talk to me, basically kicked them off the boat, left me standing on shore. And uh, I stood there and watched them leave the vessel. I contacted the Coast Guard 11 times that day and told them that there was an act of piracy going on and they didn't even bother to call me back. Wow. Why didn't they call you back? Well, the, what we believe happened was is the captain who was on board had a relative who was a very high-ranking official in the Coast Guard. And I had fired this captain uh, because he misrepresented his credentials when I had hired him to take the vessel from the Bahamas to uh, Boston or to Massachusetts. And he did not have a current license, wasn't qualified, and he was just really, really bad at his job. So when we got the vessel docked, I literally brought him into the galley and said, you need to get off the ship. You're done. This isn't going to work. As the story goes, um, we had moved the vessel, as I said. The guys came on board. They took it away. I... Uh, tried reaching out to a number of different attorneys. They finally contacted me four days later. And during that four day period, they had my wolf on board. And this was not a wolf dog. It was actually pure wolf. And they told me they would meet me at a certain location. And they were going to bring my property to me that I had on the ship. It was virtually everything I owned, including my car. 
Well, they showed up with this tiny, tiny little U-Haul truck, which couldn't have held even a quarter of the property I had. And they had my wolf in the car with them. And they wouldn't let me inspect what was inside. They said, well, you just need to sign this document. Otherwise, we're not going to give it to you. I said, you want me literally to sign it sight unseen? And they said, yes, and you also will not get your dog back. And as I looked towards the truck where they were, they had her sitting in the front seat, and the guy sitting next to her had a gun to her head. Wow. So there was not a whole lot of choice in the matter. So I signed the document, got the U-Haul, got my wolf back, and uh, that's how it all got started. And didn't end well. Yeah. Now, how much money did you put into the Atlantis too? A uh, considerable amount. Uh, oh, I mean, not only us, in give us a number. Probably almost, probably almost uh, eight hundred thousand dollars, and so, then a lot of time and effort. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand this, but modern piracy uh, is alive and well. If you go to Indonesia and you have a really nice boat and you're an American tourist and you got lots of money, well, you might as well kiss that goodbye. And so the Atlantis II is a historic vessel. And the, the, you know who took it. We're not going to name names here, but they boarded it with six armed gunmen, took it right in the middle of the waters um, between Connecticut and Rhode Island and uh, literally just kicked you out of the deal. Now they, they can claim ownership. This is, uh, these are under salvage rules. Am I correct? Um, what it, well, he claimed that, uh, that, I hadn't been making the payments towards the vessel and they hadn't even started yet. What he did was, is he falsified the stock certificates and claimed that I signed over hundred percent ownership of the vessel to him, which there's no possible way I would have done that. And that's how he convinced the Coast Guard that uh, he had the right to take it. By having armed guards and uh, coming on the vessel that way, he knew that that was not the proper way to take it back. If you've got a situation like that with a ship, the way it is supposed to work is you go to a court of law, you petition the court, and the other side has the option to being able to discuss what's going on. And if the court rules against you, then the marshals, U.S. marshals, board the vessel with permission. They give you time to get all your personal property off the ship, and then they turn it over to whoever won the court case. That didn't take place. So this was right. all done on, with, with nothing better than thugs to put it mildly. So it sounds fishy because, you know, think about this. You not only show up with the Atlantis II at the museum, everybody sees and knows you've been working on this boat for, oh, yeah. you know, three, four months. You show up, you did all the right stuff, then they take it from you, and the Coast Guard and the nothing is done according to the law. So no, something fishy not. Something fishy has already gone on. And by the way, if you do a simple Google search, um, you are listed as one of the owners of the Atlantis at that time period, Atlantis too. That's correct. So, so this is kind of interesting that, um, and I've seen this happen before where the logic of the law doesn't happen for some damn reason. And you're like, obviously there's a bigger story behind this, Gordon, that you don't even know about where someone knows someone is protecting this so that they can take this. And this is, Nothing more than modern piracy. Without question, it was modern piracy. 
I tried for nine years straight every year to get the Connecticut Police Department to file a police report on it, which they're supposed to take every report comes through the door. And right. they refused every single time. Wow. Yeah, it happens. It happens. So the me. reason it does. So the bottom line is the reason he took the vessel, he wanted to get the $8 million out of it for himself. Yeah, because then he could uh, borrow money against it. Once you, once you have the title and the deed to something of that kind of value, uh, you can use it as collateral. So uh, this sucks. Not a great part of the story, <laughs> but um, you have uh, been a treasure hunter, a diver, a mountain climber. I mean, um, what do you think about the next generation of adventurers? Because I, I always say this to you because we have great conversations uh, outside of the show. Um, and that is this, the next generation, they love the adventure and they do all the stuff, but they got GoPro cameras and social media sites and all this other crap. You did this at a time where you just enjoyed the adventure. You weren't doing this to try and get famous or be on TV or to get in social media. You did this for the pure adventure of it all. And people don't realize this is, um, th this is the, the adventure from you know, our generation, man. Well, um, I look at it this way. Adventure isn't always about what it looks like um, from a social media aspect of it. Yeah, that's all Adventure, an image. Yeah. It, it's an image. It's not reality. And I've actually had conversations with people that do work on television, things like that, and where they play an adventurous character. And I've said, well, you know, the difference between you and I is you're on a set. You've most of the time got a stuntman that does your real difficult stuff. Yeah. And the dangers aren't real. And I've explained it in a way that when we go out and do what we do, there is no take two, there is no stuntman, there is no hospital waiting there if you break something right that second to take care of you. This is as real as it gets. And whether it's involving extreme weather, sharks, mountain climbing, you know, various other things, things happen. But we do this stuff for the pure enjoyment of it. And the way that it makes you feel. Yeah, I would agree on that one. Because, you know, I, I went into the martial arts not because I wanted to impress anybody. I wanted to learn how to fight. I wanted to spend time with my nephew. Um, I don't go climbing up in Red Rock uh, and take pictures all the time. I do take my GoPro because it's breathtaking. Oh, my God, is it breathtaking up there. But the reality is, is that um, I think people do a lot of this crap nowadays because they want to look like they are an amazing adventurer. They want everybody to have this impression of them rather than just doing it for the love of what they're doing. They're doing it for um, impressing people on social media. And um, I do admire some of the people who have been doing this long before um, the history channel and the discovery channel started to give people their shows. Um, uh, but I, I like the fact that, you know, the comedian Bert uh, uh, Kreischer, I believe his name is, um, Bert does that great uh, story about going to Russia and they called him the machine because he could out drink everybody. But Bert <laughs> had a show on the Travel Channel and, and it was just fun to watch him just enjoy what he was doing. I mean, he was just running around having fun. 
And we're now in that age where everybody wants to be a celebrity and they want to be an influencer. And the reality is, is someone like you, the reason I have you on the show and I admire you is you did this before you could get attention for it and money for it. You did it for the pure love of it. That's what it's always been about for me. Uh, the interest of being famous or having that kind of um, notoriety really doesn't even appeal to me. What appeals to me is the discoveries, the history that we're making in the process, the things that we find along the way that the public hasn't seen, and the things we get to see in the process. Sometimes <laughs> the, the looking is the funnest part. Yeah. We... Uh, yeah, I was in Boy Scouts as a kid and we used to go to this place up in the woods in Pennsylvania where a series of rocks had formed and landed and formed a perfect Tyrannosaurus Rex. And if you don't know about this, you know, it's nobody knows about it unless you've been there. You know, we kind of keep it hush hush and quiet. Today, nobody can understand why we would keep something like that hush hush and quiet. It's like the land bridge over in Aruba, that, that has been destroyed by the ocean just pounding it. But if you've been there and seen that bridge, that land bridge, it's breathtaking. And I feel blessed to have seen that before the bridge collapsed because it was just stone and the ocean had carved out this hole underneath this wall of, of you know, stone. And, and when you can see stuff like this and you, you aren't showing photos on social media about it. It's just simply, it's your private little moment to say, I did something fun. I love this and I have this experience. And that's what I love about your stories. Um, you're not in it for the glory. You're in it for sitting back at the end of your life, sitting in a rocking chair and going, you know, I, I, I used to do this <laughs> and you did, you know, um, that's the exciting part. Well, one thing about that, I have no interest in ever sitting in a rocking chair. I what? plan on being out there with a wheelchair or a cane or a set of crutches or mechanical things that'll move me along. I have no intention <laughs> of going out that way. Well, I didn't say you were going to be an invalid in that rocking chair. I'm saying you're going to have a glass <laughs> of wine and a cigar and you can jump up at any time. The only reason you're in a rocking chair is you're wearing a blanket in front of a fireplace, you know? <laughs> yeah, that could always work. It depends on who you're with though, right? I had this conversation with Bruce Buffer, the ring announcer for the um, UFC years ago. I interviewed him on Journeys to Success. And he and I, we were both in our 50s at that time. And I basically said to him, I said, um, none of my friends understand why I take the martial arts right now. And I mean, I was getting knocked out. I was getting broken ribs and bruised. And I couldn't talk to anybody my age who understood this. And Bruce was one of the only people who sat there and he said, well, what else are you going to do? <laughs> you know, we had this laugh. And, you know, That's the average person. Point. Yeah, I mean, the average person is sitting there. And I'm not saying we're superhuman. It's just, I don't want to go out like a punk. You know, um, you know, the classic poem that says, I will not go into that good night. I will, I will rage, rage against the dying of the light. In other words, I'm not going to die like a punk. I'm going to make sure that dash between my birth date and my end date is going to be filled with these rich experiences. I wrote something a long time ago that I firmly believe in, and it's a real simple phrase. The more you live, the less you die. Yeah, yeah. And it's appropriate because we do these things because we enjoy them. But not, this is not something everybody can do. They're not cut out for it. They have to be able to take fear and danger 
and deal with it as it's coming at you and not freak out, not panic and keep your head about you. Not everybody can do that. Yeah. Dylan Thomas, I will not go gently into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day, close of day, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And, um, I've kind of always lived my life that way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not extreme like you are, but I, if someone calls me up and say, hey, let's go to Red Rock and let's go for a hike, I'm like, I'm in. Uh, if somebody mm-hmm. says, uh, hey, let's take the martial arts at 45, I'm in. Um, hey, let's go four-wheeling, I'm in. You know, because I think it's kind of like the lessons from improv, which was you say yes and. You never say no. You never say I'm not doing that. You say yes and. And I think that's the key to life. It's kind of like, yes, and. Uh, People get stuck in their own stuff and they sit there, you know, it's like people who sit there and go, you know, I don't drink. I'm a teetotaler. I will try at least one something, even if I'm not. um, I spent 25 years not touching alcohol. And then one day I said, you know what? I'd like to learn more about wine. And I don't abuse it. I just go into it. I mean, my last name literally means uh, great grapes. We we used to grow the wine. (laughs) or do grow the grapes for the wineries for the king of, of uh, Hungary. So I thought, let me, let me learn a little bit more about wine. So there's something I can add to the adventure uh, quotient in my life. Um, martial arts, writing a book, um, doing a podcast. This, I, I feel like we have to say yes to life. Yes and. Well, Hemingway had it right uh, when he said, the more you drink, the more interesting people become. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> it is because you know some people are just boring as a tack. I feel people um, open up more when they've had a, a, and I'm not talking about getting drunk and and being an alcoholic. I'm talking about a good glass of wine or a nice beer, and you you have one. That's all it takes, and you get a great conversation out of people, and you find out um, their great grandfather fought in World War One, and and they wound up, you know, going over to the Philippines and meet, meeting the guy that uh, you know their grandfather helped you know, uh, during World War II. I mean, you meet the greatest people in the world when we can just sit down and have a conversation. It clears the fog. No shit. Wanted to make a quick introduction here, or introduction, introduction, introduction. Uh, At the end of your show, we are going to make a special announcement. And I'm just going to kind of let you know that that's coming. So everybody needs to kind of pay attention because uh, this will be something worth hearing. Yeah, stick around. We have a special introduction that's coming at the end of the show where Gordon is going to uh, let you know a couple of things about what we're doing and how we're doing it. So I'm excited. Um, I want to get into something else because you were in law enforcement as well. You're not just uh, some guy. Um, You want to tell us you you were a special kind of cop. Let's let's call it that. What were you? You were gaming? I was... I was a gaming control board enforcement agent. Gaming control board enforcement agent. Wow. Which basically means that I dealt with all the criminal activity related to the casino. Say that again. You were you were. I dealt with all the criminal activity related to the casino industry. Nice. So that means if somebody tried to rip off a slot machine, run out of a casino, um, they decided to make a small fortune, uh, you know, uh, going into different casinos and playing them, 
Gordon was the man. Yeah, and we also went after sometimes the casino owners themselves because they would be rigging the machines in a way that was not exactly legal. So we kind of covered all the bases. Wow, that was interesting. Do you want to uh, share with us one of your uh, most interesting cases without naming names? <laughs> okay. Um, one morning I had come in. We started our shift around 8 o'clock. And I got asked to review a videotape from the night before Graveyard who had arrested two gentlemen who they had caught cheating on a blackjack table. Blackjack table, okay. And I'm looking at the video, and I asked the arresting agents, I said, well, why didn't you take the other two guys as well? And the comment was, what are the two guys? And I pointed out the gentleman who was standing literally blocking the view on purpose and the other gentleman who was distracting the dealer's attention. And I happened to know who all four of these guys were. Wow. And uh, I uh, went down to the casino where this originated and looked at a completely different videotape and got an even better perspective of what they had done. And uh, I contacted the district attorney, told him what we had, and he agreed to give me two separate arrest warrants, one for each one of them. I organized two separate teams, and we agreed to hit each one of these houses simultaneously at a very specific time. And neither one of the two gentlemen was there, but the relevant information that we acquired uh, resulted in one of the largest cheating organizations in the entire state. Not only were these guys doing it themselves, but they were teaching people how to doing it very methodically with videos and how to do exactly the same thing. It was a very big group. Wow. One of the gentlemen um, I caught relatively quickly, and the other one we actually uh, got in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We uh, were waiting for him when he showed up to pick up a check from his stockbroker. <laughs> so he would steal from a casino and then invest it legitimately with a stockbroker. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. These guys were actually very methodical and organized and really were good at what they did. And I've always thought if they'd put that same principles to doing something without violating the law, they might have been very successful as well. Um, as things progressed um, after we put all this together, it turns out that um, we ended up deciding to uh, go after all of these guys under RICO. RICO statute for organized crime, which right. means that they've committed multiple crimes in different cities, locations, and different properties, all doing the same type of thing. Right. So before the RICO Act, you had to go after people for each individual crime in each different county under each different uh, law structure. Am I correct? Well, we did everything throughout the entire state, and everything that we did covered that venue. We didn't have to do different things for each county, but everything we did was a felony. Wow, that's kind of cool. And... Um, so we had the normal gaming charges that we went after them for on our end. And then we also decided to go after them for the RICO statute and ended up convicting all four of them on it. Wow. And uh, it busted up this entire ring. And oddly enough, years later, and in the meantime, when all this is happening, 
there were death threats. They were threatening witnesses. There was all kinds of crazy stuff that was going on. It was just really quite an insane thing. Somebody got caught trying to put a bomb in my car. It was uh, entertaining. Wow. None of my friends wanted to be around me then. No one wanted to go to the movies with me. No one wanted to eat with me. It was just, you know, kind of like no scary. man's life. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. why a lot. That's why a lot of police officers do not let their neighbors know they are cops. Um, yeah. be, simply because um, it's it's funny. We're in a very weird day and age. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, everybody had guns. I mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Everybody either fished or hunted or had guns. We grew up with guns. Period. And nobody was running around shooting each other. Nobody showed up at a at a fist fight with a gun when I was a kid. And by the way, if you were wrong about something, you had shame about it. You know, you took your licks. You know, if somebody beat you up, you let them, you kind of let them beat you up because you were wrong. Now we don't have that anymore. Um, I lived in a community where it was so rare to hear that somebody got murdered. I think we had one murder for the whole state that the police had to solve every four years, maybe, in in suburbia and country living. Now, the cities may have been different, but man, what a different world we live in now uh, with the disrespect towards law enforcement and the disrespect that comes to human life in general. And uh, I was always taught oh, to I respect, uh, I was always taught to respect all life. Um, everybody mattered. Um, but we're in a, a very different day and age, my friend. Um, yeah. Years later, after all this had happened with these guys, I was watching the travel channel of all things. And they're talking about these group of people that were cheating at blackjack in the various casinos in Nevada. And I'm watching this and they're recreating the events of the four guys that I had arrested and convicted for racketeering. And they're showing this on the travel channel. <laughs> so your story there, is playing back to you on the travel channel. That's funny. Yeah. And I mean, what an odd thing. And I'm sitting here with my girlfriend and I'm looking at her and she goes, well, wow, that's kind of fast. I said, yeah, I'm the one that did that. And she's like, what do you mean you're the one that did that? I said, I'm the one that arrested those guys. Wow. I caught them. And it was just like some very odd thing. That's amazing. Well, Everything that I have done in my life, every adventurous activity, the work I did in the gaming industry, working for the gaming control board, various other things is preparing me and has prepared me for this amazing adventure that you and I are going to talk about towards the end of your show. Sure. And it's going to give people the opportunity to experience some of the things I've lived through. I think it's exciting uh, because I, I think in life, um, you have to do one thing in your life that is extraordinary. And a lot of people talk about this thing called a bucket list. You know, it's the five or 10 things that you've always wanted to do and you want to go do them. Well, I've never had a bucket list. I've always had a list of, well, I'm going to do this. And then I go do it. You know, I, when I was a kid, I told my friends, I'm going to live in New York City. And they're like, yeah, come on. Yeah, you're crazy. Uh, 35 years later, <laughs> living in almost every borough but the Bronx, including Long Island, I've lived in New York City, lived the New York lifestyle. Now I live in Las Vegas. And, you know, I, I don't know about you. I'm not somebody who has a bucket list. I have, well, this is, I'm living an adventure. My life, I consider an adventure and I live it that way. Well, 
Bucket lists are something that people use when they haven't realized they've done everything that they wanted to do. Right. My life has been lived thoroughly and with meaning from a very young age, and I have no intention of ever slowing down for that. Yeah. And I'm not going to say your age, but you are uh, in your AARP age group, and nobody would ever guess that you are the age you are. You look for uh, you look 20 years younger than what you are. Well, when people ask me on my age, I have a pretty common response. I tell them I'm old enough to know better, but I still do it anyway. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> um, uh, when we have you on the show the next time, I'd really like to delve into the fact that you um, created your own casino in Colorado. We'll talk about that. That's a, another story for another time. Um, yes. But let's, let's talk a little bit. I am jazzed when I run into you. You have won all these awards uh, for your photography. And I, I kind of I look at it this way. You're in the right place at the right time, brother, sometimes. It's just you showed this picture of a mountain sunrise. I think it's up in Red Rock. And the clouds are clearing over this peak and the sun the golden light of the sun hits this reddish orange rock. And so in the foreground are these dark mountains and then the, the peak in the background just lights up. And I love seeing that photo. It's beautiful. Yeah. That photo was actually called red Rockham. <laughs> yeah. And you, you keep winning awards cause um, you have a really good eye. I just want to let you know Thank that. You. Yeah. Not everybody uh, can do that with the photography. It's uh, pretty impressive. The primary venue I like to work with is black and white. It was such a great um, media at one point, and then it, people kind of got away from it, and it's made a huge comeback. Right. But it is so much more dramatic and so much more intense, and it just has this boldness about it when you look at it. And if the lighting is correct and the focus is right and everything is just there it makes for an amazing photograph yeah it does it really does what kind of camera are you using i know i know that's i i can't call that a stupid question but i'm uh an art director and, a, and smart enough to know it's not your equipment it's your eye but i do want to talk about um how canon uh canon has really changed the game uh between amateurs and professionals yeah, I use a professional-grade Canon camera. It's a 1DX Mark II. And right now, that camera is just blowing everything away. The ability to adjust the ISO and um, the amount of light that you can get absorbed through that camera and the various speeds that that thing will produce is just like nothing I've used. Yeah. And... That has a great deal to the quality of that. That's incredible. Well, the, one of the things that uh, I think is extraordinary about you, and I've seen your work, um, you might be walking along and you see an artist laying on the sidewalk uh, sketching. Uh, you might be, you <laughs> yeah. might be walking along and um, you find an old uh, 1958 uh, Ford pickup truck that's rusted and beat up, and you'll capture that. And you know, not everybody has the eye for that. I know people who take like 30, 40 shots and they just, ah, oh, it's just bad. And um, you've shown me a couple of things. And, you know, as a, I'm, I'm telling you, as a creative director and an art director from New York City, 
I know immediately when I see a good photo and I go, if that photographer had been a thousand feet to the left or a thousand feet to the right, <laughs> to the right, that would have been yeah. a better photo. And you showed me a couple of things. I said, oh, I'm just tearing my hair out because, I, you know, I used to do this. You know, I dabbled in photography as well, especially special effects. And I realized uh, as I'm taking a photo, my eye got better. My eye, when it came to capturing the framing of the subject matter, got better. And so when I saw your work, you're a natural. And, and I think it comes, I hate to say it, it comes with age and enough time on a mountain to know when your subject gets to get, get cropped a certain way and you capture something so dramatic that you happen to be there in that moment and you're like, you know, God has kissed the top of that mountain and Gordon is there with a the camera. Well, I had a friend the other day actually pay me a extremely good compliment. Well, it's not deserved by any means, but he had seen some of my black and white work and he said it was comparable to Ansel Adams. Yeah. And that kind of blew me away. And the fact that this guy is also a lawyer, which made it even a bigger compliment because they just don't do that. But um, I took that, you know, it was a very nice compliment. Well, you may not know this, but a lot of doctors, lawyers, and scientists are actually frustrated artists because their parents said, you're not going to be a damned artist. You're going to be starving to death. You're going to become a lawyer. I don't want to be a lawyer, mommy. Too bad, Billy. You know? <laughs> and so they become shadow photographers, shadow artists, shadow admirers of the creative uh, worlds. And they, they donate to art, you know, projects because they can appreciate it at some level. and to I don't even know if anybody remembers who Ansel Adams is or was, but he used to take a ground glass camera, which was those big bellows cameras with the wooden um, uh, tripod built in, and he would climb up into the mountains of Colorado Rockies, Montana, places like this, and he would use an 8 by 10 um, ground glass um, film. You know, the, it was just sheet film. And he would drop it in, and we're talking cold. It's cold out. And so he would wait till the sun hit the mountain a certain way, and then he would take one shot at a time, get the F-stop just right. He would bracket, and he would do it perfectly. And then he would take all this film back to his lab, and he would print it out on these giant 30-foot prints. So you actually felt like you were there. But you have that eye man my friend and uh, you know i'm i'm a good Thank judge you. of that stuff you know capturing a sunlight coming up is one thing um like when i was on long island i used to notice when the sun would set in the backyard or it would rise in the morning all the trees in our next door neighbor's yard it was like a, a being in the woods they were all maple trees and things like this um the sun would come up, and so the bottom of every tree was still in darkness, but the top would be kissed with this fire engine red light. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of things that you got to capture. And I remember my sister-in-law, I would, I would take a photo, and I'd come running back in the house, i go, look at this, look at this. And she'd be sipping her coffee. She goes, my God, you, you just see stuff that I never notice, I never look at. And I think that's the key to great photography. Photography for me has always been a way of telling my story. 
every adventure I've ever been on, every place I've ever seen, every unique experience I've ever had, I've documented it by taking pictures of it. Right. I think to date I have close to 90 photo albums full of photographs that I have taken and done. None of the, most of those, most people have never seen. But sometimes when you tell people about an adventurous life that you've had and all the things that you've done, they look at you like, oh yeah, sure, you're just full of crap. There's no way you could have lived that kind of life. Well, right. I can prove it. I can back up it. I've documented proof that I have done these things. It's not just somebody talking out their ass. And uh, that's frustrating sometimes. And Brad has convinced me that because of that very statement that I made, he thinks that I should write a book. And people might actually be interested in it. I don't know about that, but I've at least considered the idea and am planning on trying to do something with it. Yeah. And I think you, you have it in you because... Uh, it's like a buddy of mine, his brother, uh, he, he does these cross country motorcycle trips, uh, and he wears the full gear, you know, um, full helmet and he has a, a cross country motorcycle that can go up in the mountains and everything, you know, dirt bike, basically a glorified dirt bike with turn signals and the photos he's gotten. I just looked at him and said, dude, you need to do a book. I mean, this the, the photos make my jaw drop, and I'm a pro. I'm a professional. So if my jaw is dropping, imagine what an amateur is going to do when they open this book and go, oh, wow. Um, so I look at your work in the same way, but it's more than that. It's the art of photojournalism. It's the art of taking a photo and telling a story around it. It's the art of that, that got recaptured in uh, Humans of New York, uh, where you take a photo and then there's a story around it. People have to get past the idea that once you get to a certain age, you have to slow down, you have to be careful. Oh, yeah. You have to sit on the couch watching dull sports channels. Yeah. You have to get out and live every moment as if it was your last because you never know when it's going to be. You have to get off the damn couch, you have to take a step, and you have to do something. Yep. And it doesn't matter what it is. And if things scare you, don't do it because not everybody can overcome that. Like get off your ass and do something. Yeah. You know, and you'll I, live longer. Everybody's taught that, well, when you're a certain age, uh, you should just pack it in. You're done. And I disagree with that. Oh, and, screw that. Yeah, screw that. And, and here's, here's one of the reasons why. I started taking martial arts at 45. And I kind of freaked everybody out because at 45, you're not supposed to do that stuff. And I did. <laughs> and I was fighting 20-year-olds in the ring. And I thought, this is kind of why you and I kind of bonded a little bit because I would mm -hmm. sit there and I would just tell you a little bit of my adventures and you'd be like, yeah, I get it. You, you get it. So when people get it, they get it. You know, like minds bond uh, together. And, There's very uh, few of those, though. Yeah, and so I've always been the kind of person that's like, okay, um, I'm going to move to Las Vegas and all my friends are looking at me. They're getting ready for retirement. And I'm just like, now I'm going to start a business. I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to do this. And they're getting ready to, you know, 10 years from now, they're going to retire. And that's all they're focused on. And I'm focused on the next adventure. I'm focused on climbing the next Absolutely. Mountain. At the end of the day, like we talked about Dylan Thomas earlier, I do not want to go gently into that good night. I want to know what it's like 
to get knocked out. I want to know what it's like to break a rib in the ring. I want to at least know that I've taken me who I am to the ultimate level. When I hear about some of your adventures, I realize that there's a lot of women out there that we're not getting on camera and we're not talking to who are mountain climbers, scuba divers, um, adventures. I mean, this is a very powerful thing. There's two things I see missing from our dialogue, and this is for a separate conversation, but I don't see any black conservative shows on TV, and I don't see any of the adventure shows with women. So there, I see a gap in the marketplace. You know, as a marketer, I look at this. We're, we're going to change re- that. Well, this is real dialogue. I mean, this is, I miss that because, you know, my mom, <laughs> this is the funny part about my mom. My, fun, my mom was funny as hell. Um, she had do, two gym memberships. And she would go swim at one place and then go lift weights at another. And she's in her 60s. You know, this is my mom. You know, she is a, she didn't wear femininity, you know, like, like a, I'm carrying a poster and I'm talking about femininity. She lived it. You know, she lived her own version of it. Here's what I'm going to do on your show, Brad. Let's put a challenge out to the female adventurers out there that want to be heard. Let's get them to write into your show, email your yes. show, whatever it takes. Let them be heard. Let them come I, on your show and you know, tell them their story. I want to hear that. And it just excites me when I hear this challenge because when I hear that a woman climbs a mountain and lives, you know, in a tent and then, you know, starts to do certain things, you know, hunts and fishes, you know, I grew up with girls like this, women like this. And I, I look for that in this day and age because that's a strength that we've lost touch with. You know, I, I, we're descended from Irish Viking genes, you know, Hungarian Vikings. Uh, and <laughs> the women in those cultures, they did not stand down. They stood equal. No, they didn't. They fought side by side and they yeah. carried a sword and they were extreme warriors. And those adventurous women are out there. They just haven't heard their voice. Yeah. I mean, and you can you, give them that. If you look at Spartan culture, you look at Zulu culture, you look at Irish and pixel, pixie culture, you know, the women stood side by side. You know, look at Vikings. They stood side by side Absolutely. with the warrior men. And I've always admired that and i think it's time to bring the a little bit of that back i mean it shocked me when i first started seeing women in the ufc but they are the most brutal fighters oh my they're amazing they're absolutely amazing oh yeah the cyborg cyborg scares me she's a ufc (laughs) fighter she scares me um uh what's her name holmes uh she uh, um you know, Ronda Rousey. I mean, these are absolutely she's strong, amazing. strong women that I look up to, you know, and, and I hate this phrase that is used all the time about millennials. They mock them that they're, you know, they're snowflakes. Well, John Jones in the UFC is a millennial. Um, you know, uh, McGregor is a millennial. Okay. These great fighters that we're looking at are all millennials. So let's stop lumping the millennials into this you know, pot, you know, we have all the female fighters. My God, they're all millennials. All the, the, the top fighters right now. Um, I just love this story. Um, there was a woman explorer. 
her name escapes me right at the moment, but she crossed Antarctica by herself by pulling a sled that she had packed with food from one point to the next and did this in these unbearable conditions by yeah. herself. And she succeeded at this. Yeah. Most guys can't even do that. It's, it's, you know, history has been rewritten by those who decide what the story will be. And I got to tell you, you know, a lot of people know who the number one person who flew across the Atlantic Ocean for the first time, and that's Charles Lindbergh. But they right. don't remember the second person, this German guy. Which was a female. No, the third was Amelia Earhart. And she is remembered. Well, yeah, that's true. She's that's number true. three, but she was remembered because she's the first woman. So we've, we have these great icons of history. And I find it ironic that we're two men who are talking about women we admire who are adventurers. But I look at Amelia Earhart and I just kind of go, that is amazing to watch what she did at a time when a lot of people didn't want to hear that story. Uh, you know, she you hear decided about, what her fate was going to be. Exactly. You hear of Joan of Arc, Annie Oakley, Amelia Earhart. You hear all about mm -hmm. these strong women adventurers. And you know for a fact as an adventurer yourself, you stood side by side with these women on a I mountain. Have. And I love this. I have. I love this dialogue. Before the technical break that we took, we were talking about an event that I took place in Honduras and how I was dealing with uh, the political comp opinion of an embassy. Yeah. And they told us not to come to Honduras with our team because we didn't know the language, didn't know the territory. Um, we would just get in the way, so on and so on and so on. So that was ignored. So we arrived and we went about our business and I broke our teams up into four groups of 10 and sent them around the different parts of the country. And I went in more remote locations and it was just interesting getting there. And I get to a point where we get to a river and they're taking these small, long, really cool, what they call a canoe, called the Papante across this river, transporting people from one side to the next. And the military wow. is on the other side. And when you get over there, the military is actually charging people to come to the other side. And I'm thinking, okay, this is very, very wrong. So I find the guy in charge and I basically say to him, what true translator, what is it going to take for you to stop doing this? And of the stupidest thing, all it took was these embroidered baseball caps that I had with my company logo on them. I had to give them 20 of these hats and they start charging the locals to come across this river. And um, when the whole thing was said and done, my little group of people who weren't supposed to be there had gotten medical attention to over 10,000 people. And wow. this was more than the International Red Cross did and had done and spent millions of dollars doing. And we had helped rebuild bridges, homes. We fed countless people. We had people trying to give us their six-month-old baby to take us home with us because it would have a better life with us. This is the yeah. kind of things that happened. Yeah. So we get back, and we're calculating all the things that took place, and we decide to write a letter to this person within the embassy. So we talked to him, reminding him of what he commented, and we list all these 
things that we accomplished and who we affected and how we did it, which was completely um, inaccurate from his point of view. And the person who is drafting the letter, he says, well, how do you want to sign this? I said, well, I've got a very direct way I want to have to sign this. And I said, I want you to do this. And I want this to be exactly. I said, thank you very much for your original correspondence, but uh, these are our results. So, and we're going to sign off on this as fuck you very much. <laughs> and that's how we sent the letter back to this guy. This guy had no idea what we were capable of. He had no idea who we were and what we could accomplish. And nobody has the right to decide that for us, especially when you put a team of adventurers together. There's no limitations. Yeah. Pull the plug out. It doesn't apply. Get over it. It's so true. You know, I had a friend who worked, um, and he was a very humble man, uh, but he was head of customs in Nigeria. And he mm. said, Brad, I had so much power, it wasn't funny. He said, anything that came in and out of this country, I was in charge of. But because he had a good heart and he was a spiritual person, he gave all that up to come to America to learn and grow and become something greater. And it's very hard for Americans to understand in these other countries how people will treat other people. You know, when somebody is given a little bit of power, they will abuse it. And we That's see it here in America. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naive. We see it in America. Um, we have people who have been in the same position for 30 years, and they haven't helped anybody. And so you, Gordon, have helped uh, in a lot of disaster relief situations where the local magistrate isn't going to let you work because they want a piece of the action. They want some money. And I love the that fact happened. that I love the fact that you get around this stuff. I mean, this is, oh my goodness. I don't know how you do it, man. Brother, it's, <laughs> I, I have no patience for this shit. I hate when bureaucrats get involved. I remember in New York City when I took my company public, I was working with the New York unions. Oh my God. And I love unions. I'm a, I'm a union supporter. But these guys, they wouldn't let me get anything done. And I worked around them and I just said, look, if you give me fair numbers, you give me fair money, I will always use you guys. But when you try to play a game with me, that's when you lose me. Don't do that to me. I know I support you. I love what you're doing, but don't play a game with me. And I think you're, you're the same way. You don't like games being played with you. When we decided to do a um, disaster relief trip to the Bahamas, specifically Grand Baham Island, after Hurricane Francis and Jean, the ambassador from the Bahamas had sent a letter to them explaining that we were coming down and we were bringing a team and that they were supposed to cooperate with us. And this was sent to all the designated people. When we got there, there was this series of meetings that I had to go with the hospital, with the defense force, with this administration, with that administration, and basically their version of FEMA. And I won't give you the guy's name, but he's having this conversation with me and he's telling me, well, we appreciate you being here, uh, but we want to take all the supplies you have and we want to distribute them and we just want you to go home. And 
I had the foresight to have somebody with a camera filming every single event that we went to so that it was all documented. And I sat there for a second real calmly, and I just looked at him when I got done, and I said, no. And he just looks at me and goes, what do you mean, no? I said, that letter in front of you says you're supposed to cooperate with me. And I said, frankly, I really don't care whether you do one way or the other. But we're here to help the people of the island. We're here to get things back on track. And I said, we will either work with you or we won't. But we will accomplish what we're trying to do. So you decide how you want to do this. And the gentleman kept looking at the camera. And it was obviously making him quite nervous. So he obviously was being very careful what he was saying. Yeah. And he finally just said, okay, we'll do that. But the reality of it was, from that point on, him and I did not get along. <laughs> and in, yeah, and in spite of that, um, we still managed to accomplish everything we tried to do. But in those situations, I have a very bad habit of not being politically correct. Well, uh, I hate to say it, but Americans are considered arrogant in the rest of the world. And it's actually a misinterpretation. We have been taught since day one that we have the power over our government. So we have this attitude that government officials should shut up and listen to us. But when we go to other countries, we forget, and I'm not talking you, I'm talking other people. We forget that the rest of the world doesn't operate that way. Their governments no, tell them what to do and they comply. And so Americans yeah. are seen as arrogant. So you walking in with a letter and telling this guy off and having him on camera probably just scared, not only scared him, but befuddled him. And well, that was my intention. And I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of, I want to help people. Bureaucracy gets in the way. And a lot of people know this, but my ex-wife is from Haiti and we, we have a great relationship. I mean, we talk once a week to this day. We're good friends. But the, her, the earthquake in Haiti happened in 2010. Do you realize there are supplies still sitting on the dock in Haiti right now that will not be released because of bureaucratic bullshit? And this is the kind of stuff that happens around the world, ladies and gentlemen, where we want to take care of people. We want to help people. And by the way, this is what Bono f uh, figured out. This is what, um, what's his name, figured out Bob um, uh, Gandalf, I think his name is. Uh, when they did Live Aid and the right. African Relief, they learned very quickly that no one really actually understood that you're supposed to deliver this food for free. They were actually charging exactly. people. And so people don't understand. The rest of the world doesn't think like an American. But Americans, and this has been said time and time again, I've seen people in tears who say only an American would give $10,000 to help us. Only an American would step in and try to help us. And, uh, you know, we've seen contradictory evidence of this, but we as individuals, we love to help. We do. And I want to give people an opportunity to do that. But I don't want to give them an opportunity to see, okay, give this money and just hope that it goes somewhere. I want to give them an opportunity to make a contribution and come and join our effort and yeah. see where their money's being spent. There is a significant need for a private funded 
not a nonprofit, but a for-profit business that goes out and deals with the disaster release on a first responder basis with a ship yeah. and equipment and communication and everything that's necessary that doesn't contribute to the problem. Yeah. And let these people come out and say, okay, this is where my 20 cents went. I just fed this woman that hasn't eaten in a week. I agree. Let them see it. And it's amazing how people cannot grasp around their head that this is a necessity. I think what you're, you are trying to do is amazing. And I, I find it astounding that people give you a hard time about this because people don't realize do. like how much money was given to the Red Cross to help Haiti. And they, they didn't give it all. They kept half of it for themselves. And Actually, they kept more than half of it, Brad. There is a law that most people aren't aware of that most nonprofits, almost all nonprofits, there is a law in the books, and I have no idea who put this there. Any donations that are given to a nonprofit, 97% of that can go to administration. Only 3% of it actually goes to the actual event. And people that give to the Red Cross and other organizations like this, that's what they're dealing with. Yeah, they're paying for administration. I, you know, I love what the Red Cross is doing, but they really have kind of come under fire, and I've been very upset by the simple fact that it, they have not followed through. They're a good organization that has been caught in their bureaucracy, and it really it upsets me because we, ladies and gentlemen, can live in a better world if these things would follow through to help others. You know, we have a lot of poor people. We have veterans that are living in these horrible conditions and we could help. And uh, I hate to say it, but some of the bureaucracy gets in the way. Some of the uh, things that we just talked about, you know, Gordon, you talked about trying to get into these countries to help. And the bureaucracy is just astounding because these are little people who want to make their little money and go back home and, and rule over their fiefdoms. And the reality oh, I, is, yeah. yeah, you know what's going on, but I do, you know, I hate, you know what I don't like, and this is the thing you and I bond over. I think I don't like seeing suffering uh, of people when it's not necessary. I mean, you know, people get their house destroyed but I grew up in Pennsylvania and the Amish would show up and help build a house or, you know, people would come out and, and the community and help feed a family. The, the community would help. And now in some areas, that's illegal. You know, there's this control and this centralized control that's interfering with us just being human beings again. There's a real simple reason why there are so many homeless people in this country, why Animals are not being protected. Why we have massive trash dumps in the Pacific Ocean the size of Texas. It's a problem. It needs to be taken care of. But the reason it's not is because it's not profitable. Yeah. Bottom line. And when you can take something like that and turn it into a profitable endeavor, then people will pay attention and people will help and nations will help. It's true. As long as they can make a dollar out of it. I know how we can take care of the homeless in this country and turn it into a profit and eradicate that. 
I know how we can take the trash dumps that are in the Pacific Ocean and turn that into a profitable business and eliminate that. You know what's incredibly amazing? I see millennial, young, young millennials who invent a way to clean up the ocean or to create a car that doesn't run on gasoline or all these different things. And it dies. It dies on the body. It gets, profitable. A, it gets a little bit of popularity and then it gets destroyed. You know, it's like there's a great documentary uh, called Who Destroyed the Electric Car? And it basically talks yeah. about, you know, it's not profitable and we've got to move past this. We've got to move past this. And you and I are old enough to remember when you, you could take a month off from work and relax a little bit. You can't do that anymore. Well, there's two ways to look at that. Um, you either have to deal with the fact that you can't do that or you find a way to look at that weakness of greed and apply it to how you can make that work and make it profitable so that you actually get the help you need. Right. It's not necessarily a bad thing to make it profitable as long as it gets the job done. And the end result is eliminating the trash, eliminating the homeless situation, helping animals that need it, or whatever yeah. the cause may be, feeding people around the world. Turn it into a profitable situation yeah. so that the end result is you get done what you need to do. I don't care who wants to make a money buck from it, as long as those things occur. It's just so weird in this country because um, in France, at the end of the day, all the uh, restaurants, they take their food that wasn't sold or their excess or whatever, and they feed the homeless with it. We're not allowed to do that in America. That's illegal. And I'm like, what? Um, there are restaurants cropping up all over where it's for the homeless and they come in and they sit at a table and they just order. You know, we, we've lost touch with being human beings. We've lost touch with we have. this great, wonderful dialogue where, you know, people can sit down and be human again. This is such BS that we see in our culture nowadays. Oh, adventures about culture and experience and food and taste and passion uh, and yes. living every minute of what you're getting out of that. <laughs> there's, um, there's a song by the group Poison. It's called Ride the Wind. And I don't know if a lot of people have actually heard this viewing or listening audience. This song, if you pay attention to the words, is about a straight-up hardcore adventure. Yeah. And it's a good song. And I don't know how well it did, but if you get the opportunity to listen to it, it will make you realize, wow, okay, I get it. And I've lived a lot of the things they talk about in this song, like being yeah. in lonely bars in the middle of nowhere where the rain would never stop. I know what that feels like. You know, it rained on know, the tent. A rain on a tin roof in a tropical rainforest. If you don't know what that's like, folks, I suggest yeah. you, you experience it. If you don't know what it's like to experience humidity that is so high that even when you jump into the swimming pool, you feel exactly the same as you did standing outside of it. If you don't know what that feels like, if you don't know what it's like to ride a horseback on a beach in Mexico, get up and do <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, go to Africa. Go to... I mean, I, I literally have had some of the best adventures. And I think, uh, you know, the reason I had Gordon on the show today is I really wanted to talk about all these amazing adventures that you've had, Gordon, because I think, you know, 
We're entering into a time in this world, in America, around the world, where people are starting to wake up and realize we've been bamboozled. And it's well, they time, realize they haven't lived. You stand up and you say to yourself, okay, am I supposed to work my entire life, take a couple of vacations on Prince's Cruise Lines, and, and uh, you know, do the water slide, enjoy my life, retire and die? That's not life. You know, people get, do you know that people get awards for designing cubicles? Do you know that? No, actually I don't because I really wouldn't care about that. <laughs> I just, I find this funny that people get an award for designing a, a basically a stable for a human being to work on a computer. Uh, I just find this fascinating. That's like a death wish to me. I, you were talking about humidity in places like that. I was in the jungles in Philippines once with a group of people that I probably shouldn't have been with. And the canopy was so thick in the jungle. It was like walking in a sauna. Oh yeah. I know what you, I know what you're talking about. I've been in Mexico on the first day of the rainy season and I'll never forget this. The girl I was with, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. It was five o'clock in the afternoon and it usually rains in August is the beginning of the rainy season. So, um, I literally was standing by the swimming pool and I said, I can't take it anymore. And I jumped into the pool and I literally didn't feel any different. Nobody yeah, knows changed. what 100% humidity is like when it's not raining, not raining, 100% humidity. And that's what when we were I, experiencing. When I was in this jungle, I was telling you about, it was literally pouring down rain outside, but none of it was getting through. Yeah. And you're walking down and you're in, everything you're wearing is completely soaking wet and you're hiking it. up this, these hills into this thing and there's weird snakes everywhere and these spiders that are the size of, you know, dinner plates. And they're taking you to this place where something happened in 1945 and you're going, yeah, okay, right. And uh, you just do this because you want to know. Yeah. But you're curious. The, price you pay sometimes as you do these things is very well worth it. Even though that was a miserable thing, I'm sitting here talking to you about walking in a living sauna. Well, I told my nephew, I said, when I turn 65, which isn't that too far away, I want to have a nice fire pit in my backyard, invite my friends over to tell great stories smoke a cigar and drink some a bottle of something amazing and my nephew sebastian said okay please right. ca- please count me in on that and so you i'm gonna be a part of that i'm gonna do better on that when you turn 65 you are not going to be sitting in a fireplace drinking i am going to take you on a badass adventure that you will remember the rest of your life and then you can sit by the fire and drink but you are not going to sit around by yourself going oh i can live a good life i'm going to show you <laughs> a badass adventure Thank and you. then I'm going to try to scare the shit out of you, which I may succeed at. Nice. And we're, that, you're not, no, no, no stuff <laughs> for that minor bullshit stuff. Forget that. <laughs> Gordon's not letting me go out <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, no, not at 65. When you're 95, maybe, but I, not 65. I stood on a mountain once. Um, all right. This is the, we've had a great conversation on the show and, I usually go into the lightning round here, so I'm going to ask you three questions. Okay. That we are 
going to talk about so we get to know you a little bit better. And the first one is, yeah, what are you known for that most people don't know that you're known for? Oh, well, um, I actually created my own urban legend. Cool. Tell us about that. I discovered from paying attention and events that uh, people that drive around with antenna balls on their car are terrible drivers. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I have really paid attention to this. I've had cars come up beside me and I'll see antenna balls on them. It's like, I'll move over to the other lane. And without fail, something weird will happen. They will cut in front of me. They will not use their turn signals. They will just do strange things. They will drive super slow. They will just break funny. Consistently, over and over and over again, this happens. And I've been noticing this for at least 10, 15 years. That's funny. There may be something about the mindset of putting an antenna ball on your car that just comes out about, but they get these weird things like there's this cactus, there's the one from Jack in the Box, there's all kinds of different things, and a little tennis ball. I mean, some people put even weirder things on there, but they drive weird. They do. My second question is, what makes you cry? People who abuse animals. Yeah. That, that pisses me off. Yeah, it pisses me off, but it makes me very upset. There's no reason for that. I recently saw somebody who had taken a kitten and painted it or dyed it purple and were allowing their pit bull to use the kitten as a chew toy. Yeah. That's Those people way. should be put out and hung to dry. There's no excuse for that kind of behavior. I agree, brother. I agree. Anybody who can abuse an animal does not have the emotional maturity to deal with human beings. You know, if you're willing to abuse an animal, that means you're on the road to being a sociopath. Trust me. Exactly. So my next question is, Okay. On the day you die, what do you want to be known for? Well, since I don't plan on dying, that's not the easiest <laughs> question to answer. Um, well, if that was to actually be the case, I would say um, known for living my life to the fullest of its ability, living it with meaning and passion, and never giving up on what I strive for or wanted to accomplish. That's awesome. Gordon Hunsiger, how do we get a hold of you? If we had to go find you on the internet, where do we go? Well, it sounds to me, Brad, like it's time for our little announcement. Yeah, you have an announcement. Tell us, what, what do you want to announce? Our company, Aquanautics Expeditions, which uh, we will give you the website um, in a future reference. In New Year's Eve of this year, we are inviting all adventurers to come out and be part of one of the most exciting adventures of modern time. We want you to come out and join us on the recovery of all the artifacts and treasure of a pirate ship 
that went down in the early 1600s in some of the clearest water in the world in the what will be designated as the largest research vessel on the planet. You will have a cigar bar, a incredible restaurant, sushi, coffee experiences, food that you can't even imagine, tasting from everywhere you can, that's not even on your bucket list or whatever that list may be. And you will get to dive every day with us three times a day and help us bring up these artifacts and treasure from one of the greatest treasure ships that ever sailed the Caribbean. Woo! Boom. And I am giving Brad that exclusive. He is the first one to know about this. Fantastic, brother. Uh, how do we get a hold of you for this uh, excursion? Um, we will set that up at another time. We're not ready to make that particular public announcement yet because the website's not ready and done yet. Sure. But uh, we will be able to start taking bookings within the next 30 days, and I will provide you with the necessary information for your sure. viewers at that time. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for being on Awakened Nation. We've had a fantastic conversation, as always. My brother, Ginger, thank you for being on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Brad. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You bet. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.